The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. If you have heard those words before, but they're anonymously written, and uh, they're so profound, in my opinion, and uh, obviously the opinion of the Gideons, because they placed it as the preface to their New Testament, which they uh, distribute around the world. Uh, it contains 41 subpoints, and each of those subpoints is valid. Not only that, they'd make a great sermon. But rather than that, today I'd like to uh, speak on the significance of the Bible as a whole, taking each of those and kind of putting it into one simple sermon. Uh, obviously, that's impossible in a 40-minute sermon, so it's going to be a little bit, bit disjointed, but uh, we'll try our best to get it right. Um, we call the Bible holy, and by doing so, we acknowledge that it is God's written word to mankind. It's set apart, it's unique, and it stands alone as God's word to us. So this would be in contradistinction then to all other books that have ever been written. When I say that it's set apart, I mean all other books are over here and the Bible is over here. It's completely other in its content. Then when I say that it's unique, it means that all other books are here and the Bible is here. It is incomparable in everything that it teaches and that it proclaims. And when I say that it stands alone, that means that nothing needs to be added to it. God in his infinite wisdom has given us a word that we can understand and that is completely sufficient for our lives, for our salvation, and for everything that it contains. Likewise, nothing can be taken from it without it becoming something less than the word of God. And that's not to say that we can't take like a piece of Proverbs and quote it and do an analysis of it, but on a whole, it is the guide for our life. And uh, everything it records, every teach, everything it teaches, and everything it proclaims is the Word of God. As it says in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Here is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Well, how do we learn to fear God? and keep his commandments, it's through the pages of the Bible. And when he said that there is the making of many books, there being no end to that, I know people that read book after book 
after book after book about the Bible, and they never read the Bible. I know a, a minister, he's been a minister for 30 years, and he admitted to me one time, I've read the Bible once. And I thought, what a shame. I mean, he has read, he's, he quotes books all the time, and he, he refers them to you, and uh, he's never taken the time to delve into the Bible more than one time. He does read it, don't get me wrong, he reads Matthew or the Psalms or whatever, but we need to make sure that when we get up in the morning, we get into God's Word. And when we go to bed at night, we get into God's Word. And this was the challenge that I gave to this church and to the people on Facebook and around the world recently, was to read your Bible 30 minutes a day, and you can be done in 154 days. And we really have no excuse for saying that my life is messed up when we're not following the dictates of the Bible. So um, I'd like to speak first on why we use the terms. First one being Bible. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the Greek word biblios and the Latin word biblia. They both mean a collection of books. That's all it is. The Bible is a collection of books, all right? Or a Bible is a collection of books. In the case of this Bible, it is the collection of the books that were given to the prophets, and we compile them into what we call the Holy Bible. It is 39 books of the Old Testament. It's 27 books of the New Testament. These comprise 1,189 1, chapters, or 31,103 verses. In addition to those, there are 137 other verses which are not numbered. These are like the, the uh, Psalm of David, or a Psalm of Korah, or a Psalm of the sons of uh, uh, Asaph, or whatever, Psalm of Ascents. Those 137 verses are not numbered. And I tell you that the reason why I'm bringing this up isn't to get into minutia, but so you understand what we are talking about. And the reason why this is very important is because the Catholic Church has other books that they have added in to what we call the Holy Bible. They're known as the Apocrypha. And the reason why they did this was to justify certain practices that they had gotten into over the years. They were never considered canon. Jerome, when he uh, translated the Latin Vulgate, uh, said that these would be in the Bible over my dead body. They were not canon, and it was understood by the church for that. But the Catholics inserted these into the Bible, like I said, to justify purgatory, indulgences, etc. This happened at the Council of Trent in 1546. And by doing that, they are saying that we have authority over God's Word, whereas the Protestant churches say, no, we discover God's Word. We do not determine God's Word. So you see the theological difference there. We have no authority over God's Word. In fact, I was reading a commentary on one particular verse, which is a little um, debated in the Bible, and the Catholic Church actually says we reserve judgment as to whether we will consider this as canon or not when it's actually in one of the books of the Bible. So uh, it, it's something that we need to be very careful with, and as that commentary said, it is not to be trifled with. We're not to just arbitrarily take things out of the Bible or add things into the Bible. Um, the term holy. Why do we use the term holy? It simply comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, the Greek word hagias, both meaning the same thing. And I used the term earlier. It is set apart. Holy means it's completely other. It is consecrated. So this is what we think of when we think of the Holy Bible, the 66 books of the Christian canon. So if this is the Holy Bible, then we should determine what makes the Bible holy. And this is important because I'm going to give you some points, and these are things that people have actually said over, years, over the years. This is what makes the Bible holy. And we need to be clear on why it doesn't make the Bible holy, because if we're not clear on those precepts, then 
our doctrine gets off. So the first one would be the men who wrote the book. Do they, by themselves, make the book holy? In other words, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, also known as the Pentateuch. And is it holy because Moses wrote it? We have Job, Jonah, John, um, Peter, Paul. All these men were holy men of God as the Bible describes them. But the Bible, the Bible also says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So we can go to the book of Haggai to discover whether the men make the Bible holy. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests answered, it becomes defiled. In other words, holiness does not transfer to the common, but defilement transfers to the common. All right, so a holy man of God is still a sin-filled man, and he cannot in and of himself make anything holy. He can merely take the words of God and transmit them to us. Just as the people that were up here a while ago played a song that they did not write. There was an author, and then they played out this music. Now, we can see the distinct style of each of these people. You may know that uh, when you hear Seth play, you may say, I know that's Seth. You might hear it on a recording in Japan someday, and you say, oh, that was Seth, right? Their own style comes through, and yet it is still somebody else's work. And this is how we can perceive the Holy Bible, is that God spoke through these people and gave us the Holy Bible. Is it the languages that it was written in? This is the next one that I'd like to address, because some people actually say, yeah, Hebrew is a, a special language, and it makes the Bible holy. And I will tell you right now that I do believe that the Bible has a pattern in it that is based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you ever see it, it is beautiful. It is marvelous. But it, in and of itself, does not make the Bible holy. The Bible was written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek, and it was written in Aramaic, those three languages. They were all common languages. Today, Hebrew is speaking again in the land of Israel, and they publish other books in Hebrew. Therefore, if they're not holy, then obviously it's not the language that is making the Bible holy. But people actually hold to this as a tenet. So be careful when you hear somebody speak about the special properties of the Hebrew language. There may be special properties of it, but that does not mean that the Bible is holy because of the language it was used. Koine Greek, the New Testament was written in that. It was the language of the Roman Empire at the time. And then you have Aramaic, which would be the lingua franca of uh, Israel at the time of Jesus. They all spoke it. It was a common language. So these languages do not make the Bible holy in and of itself. The next possibility would be the words that the Bible contains. And a lot of people like to hold every word of the Bible, and that's true, we should, but that is not what makes the Bible holy. They were written in one language, they're translated into another language, all right? There are words in the Bible which you would not consider holy, like uh, vomit, for example. Fish vomited Jonah up on the shore, okay, or a dog returns to its vomit. Well, it's not a holy word, and all of these words are used elsewhere in our language. We use them in other writings, so the words do not make the Bible holy. Well, if it's not the words, then it must be the ideas that the words form. Is it the ideas in the Bible that make the Bible holy? The answer is no. And the reason why is because these same ideas are used elsewhere. 
in other writings. In other words, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, the non-canonical Dead Sea Scrolls they found, and they talk about children of light, children of darkness. They talk about messianic figures, etc. Same ideas. All right. The Quran, which is not a holy book. The Quran says God is merciful. The Bible says God is merciful. The Quran says that God is one. And the Bible says God is one. And yet those ideas do not make the Quran holy. Why it's not holy is another subject, but we can get into that at a different time. But understand that these books, these ideas do not make the Bible holy. If ideas made the Bible holy, there is an Egyptian text which so closely mirrors the book of Proverbs that you would think that, you know, it was just a bad translation. Same construct, it's the same ideas, and yet nobody considers it holy. It's just a book of, you know, wise ideas. So the ideas do not make the Bible holy. So the next possibility is that all of these ideas form into a special symmetry. And as I said, I believe that the Bible is based on a symmetry of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Is there a symmetry in the Bible that makes it holy? All right? The answer is no. There are symmetries that do go through the Bible in different ways. There's things called chiasms. In other words, a chiasm comes from the Greek letter X. It goes this way and then it goes this way. Um, Charlie is handsome, Charlie is nice, Charlie is special, Charlie is special, Charlie is nice, Charlie is handsome. And the Bible is full of these. They span chapters, paragraphs of the Bible, chapters of the Bible. They even span, believe it or not, the entire Bible. Now, what would that do, that special symmetry? Does it make it holy? Well, the answer is no, because George Washington wrote in chiasms. The Book of Mormon has chiasms in it, and it is certainly not holy. All that does is it shows a single author. If there is a chiasm that spans the entire 66 books of the Bible, and it's quite evident it does, then there is a single author. There were 40 men involved in this book. There are 1,600 years from the writing of the first book to the last book. None of them knew that their books were going to be put in the Bible, and even if they did, they had no idea what order they'd be put in. They had no idea where it would be, and yet this pattern is there, or many patterns are there, but the chiasm in particular that I'm talking about demonstrates a single author. So the symmetries in the Bible, which are very interesting, and I love to look at these things, don't make the Bible holy. But you will go to websites and people get into that kind of stuff to the point where they lose attention on what makes the Bible holy. If it's not those things, we're left with another option. The recipients. Do the recipients of the Bible make the Bible holy? We read the board and it becomes the word of God. I bring this up because there are churches here in Sarasota, liberal theology, that says that the Bible becomes the Word of God. When we read it, it becomes the Word of God in our life. Or the Bible contains the Word of God, another sect of liberal theology. And the problem with that is that it makes us divine. And it also makes us the author of what is holy and what is not. People that go to read the Koran and they strap bombs on themselves and they blow themselves and other people up really believe that they are reading the Word of God. And that book is not holy and they don't make it holy because of what they believe. Nor does the writings of Buddha or the writings of Krishna or any of these other people. Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, right? We have his writings. Are they holy? The answer is no. 
and the people that read them don't make it holy. So be very careful that you never get caught up into a theology that says the Bible becomes the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible contains the mind of God, and it is the Word of God. This is very, very important. What makes the Bible holy, then, is the source. It is the one true God, the Creator. He gave us his word in a way that we can understand, that we can apply to our lives, and it is he that makes the Bible holy. When he made the Bible holy, he made the symmetry in the Bible, showing a single author. He gave us the ideas it contains. He gave us the words it contains. He spoke through the men. But he makes it holy, the creator. All right? So it says here in um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. Just as I said, these people played a song and the song came out through them. God worked through these people. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Each one of you, if you're a servant of God, should be thoroughly equipped for every good work based on the Bible. And you need to read the Bible in order to be equipped. So please read your Bibles. As Paul said in the book of Acts, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The source, the creator, gives us his grace in his word. Please understand that it is the creator that makes the Bible holy, and so no other document on earth can be holy. All those other books are not holy. They're for our edification, maybe, for our instruction, but they're not holy. The Bible is incomparable, and these books are down here. And the Bible stands alone. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing needs to be taken from it. It is perfect in all that it records in detail for us. If the Bible is the Word of God, and it is, then it is, the Bible is the authority on the matter of God. The Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. I don't know if any of you ever thought about that, but it doesn't ever attempt to prove God's existence. It simply speaks of God as existing. It speaks of him, you know, the existence of God as an axiom. It speaks from God about God. As it says in the book of Isaiah, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. The Bible is speaking from God about God. But not only that, it is speaking from God, from man, about God. In Psalm 90, the oldest psalm in the Bible, the first two verses say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born or you were brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So the Bible is speaking from God about God. And the Bible is speaking from man about God. But in addition to that, the Bible speaks from itself about God. One of the most incredible set of words ever penned are the first seven words of the Bible. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is speaking about God from itself. So not only does it speak from God about God, and not only does it speak from man about God, but it speaks from itself about God. And then it goes on and it confirms what it has written about God. It says in John 15:25, but this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without a reason. 
So the Bible says that this was written back here, and it's fulfilled here. And this is not unique to the New Testament, taking the Hebrew Scriptures and saying this is fulfilled in order to justify Christianity. The Old Testament fulfills the old. The new fulfills the old. The new fulfills the new. The Bible is confirming throughout it that what was written has been fulfilled. And there are things that are coming that we can see in our life that will be fulfilled, and we'll talk about those. But the Bible confirms everything that it says in one way or another. All right? Now, you can say to me, oh, Charlie, that was 2,000 years ago that John wrote that, and he's writing about something that was 2,700 years ago. But you've got to understand that when John wrote that, it was the present. And there were people there that could have refuted him. In fact, Paul, in one of his writings, in Corinthians, I believe, he's talking about all the people that were witnesses to these things. And he says, 500 people are witnesses to this, although some are now asleep, meaning they're dead, but most are still alive. Any one of those people could have come forward and said, this thing did not happen. I was there, and I know it didn't happen. Luke gives name after name after name of not only common people, but prominent figures that were still alive at the time that he wrote that. There are geographical entries. There are times that people traveled from here to here, etc., etc., and any one of these things can be determined. It's simple. The Bible confirms what it is written about itself. Anthropologically, the study of man. You don't need to go to a psychiatrist in order to get your brain fixed. Go to the Bible. I'm not saying not to go to a doctor if there's something wrong. I'm saying that the Bible resolves the things, the problems in mankind. You don't need to go to a marriage counselor if you're having marriage problems. Go to your pastor, and if he's competent, he will take you to the place in the Bible that instructs you on what you are to do in your marriage. Anthropologically, the study of man, it is the study of man. It is the authoritative study of man for, what, 2,600 years or 2,800 years? No, I'm sorry, 3,500 years, going back to the time of Moses. So the Bible supports itself that way. It supports itself archaeologically. The Bible says, this thing happened in this location. So you get out your little spade and you walk over there and you, and you tink and you hit, oh, there it is. It has never, not one time in human history has anything in the Bible ever been disproven. Never. That is not to say that everything in the Bible has been proven. I'm not going to lie to you about that. But nothing in the Bible has ever been disproven. It says this thing happened and they go and search for it and there it is. Okay? Archaeologically, the Bible is intact. Luke was the greatest author of the Roman Empire. I'm telling you what, the guy, he details an a, a ocean voyage they took where they were in a storm, and it says the sea was this deep at this point, and then it was this deep at this point. All you need to do is get a stone and tie it to a, a string and drop it, and you know that he was right, and people have done this. It says we travel from this place to this place to this place, and it took us this long, and then we spent this much time here, and you can do it. You can walk where he said they walked, and it will take that long. You can take a boat, and it will take that long. He knows the cycles of the wind. He was a beautiful, beautiful writer. But everything he says can be validated. It has been validated. A guy named Colin Hammer did a huge study on it. Anyway, um, uh, geographically, as I said, we have archaeologically. We also have geographically. That kind of fits in with what I was talking about with Luke. The Bible says this thing is here, and here it is. It, it is just a wonderful masterpiece of self-validation. But in addition to that, the Bible proves itself through predictive prophecy. 
Now, I'm not talking about the predictive prophecy that you read, and as I said, that was 2,700 years ago, and we can't really know, and then naysayers come along and they say, well, that was written after, you know, Daniel, they say it was written in 600 B.C., and it was actually written 200 B.C. because it predicts things. Forget all that. Don't raise your hand, but I know that there are some of you that are born before 1948, okay? Somebody I know that is very, very close to me was born in 1948, all right? In 1948, 14 May of 1948, something happened that the Bible said would happen on 14 May of 1948. As a matter of fact, a guy named E.W. Bollinger in 1893 and then again in 1894, he wrote two books, one called The Witness of the Stars and one called Numbers in Scripture. You can read them both online, philologos.com. It says right there that the Jewish nation would be under punishment for 2,520 years. A biblical year is 360 days. If you go to Revelation or if you go to uh, all the way back to Genesis or anywhere in between, it will always be a 360-day year that they are using. If you get that right, you're going to understand this. That he said that they would be under punishment this long. It's based on either Ezekiel 4, you can do the calculation from there, or from Daniel 7. He knew this, this would be the case and he wrote about it about 50 years before it actually happened. Because he picked up his Bible and he believed it. He said, this is going to happen. He didn't know the starting date. There's a lot of dates in there, and it's hard to determine what's going to happen, but he knew the time. And so he said, this thing is going to happen. Israel will be reestablished as a nation. Okay? 907,200 days from 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar took the first captives from Israel to Babylon which is recorded not only in the Bible, but it's also recorded extra-biblically for your, you know, God, God, he made sure that we would get this right. 907,200 days later, Ben-Gurion turned on the radio and he said, the nation of Israel has been reestablished. Exactly as E.W. Bollinger said before it would happen. Okay? More incredibly than that, there were three exiles of the Jewish people on the way to Babylon. The third one, the last one, happened in 586 B.C., 19.3 years after the first exile. It's recorded biblically, and it's recorded extra-biblically. You don't need the Bible to get this. 907,200 days later, on 7 June of 1967, 19.3 years after the establishment of Israel in a war that could not be won, the nation of Israel capture Jerusalem. God's word is sure, and it tells us what's going to happen, and we need to know that we cannot predict the future. After it happens, the Bible says, after these things happen, you will know that it was I that did it. And we know, unless you just want to cover your eyes and say, you know, I, I just can't believe that, or it's chance, or it's coincidence, or I'm not going to believe it, or, I, I, you know, the Jewish people, you know, people have beefs against them. We can't have a beef against them. They're God's people. And he said that he was going to do this thing for them. I'm going to give you one more prophecy about the Jewish nation. And it'll probably happen in our lifetime so that you can't hide your eyes. You still will. If you don't want to believe, you're not going to believe. But I'm going to tell you that it says this in the book of Joel. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them on account of my heritage, my people, Israel. For they scattered them among the nations, 
That has happened, and they divided my land. And what have we been doing for the past 20-some years? Desperately trying to seek peace. And the very thing that we think is going to bring us peace is going to bring judgment on the nations. We are going to force the hand of Israel. It is not anybody else's land except God's. It is my land, and I have given it to these people as their heritage. And we're going to force their hand, and the nations will be judged. I want to show you something. This is the flag of the nation of Israel. Now, we honor that flag there. That's our banner, our national standard. But if we don't honor this flag and support these people, that flag will disappear from the face of the earth. So please understand that God treasures his covenant with the people of Israel. It's very important we remember that. I don't want to put that on the ground. Mark Twain, when writing about his travels through Israel, he wrote a book called Innocence Abroad, and you can read it right online as well. You don't have to, you know, download or anything. It's right there. Just type in Innocence Abroad, and several universities have it. He said this in 1869. Palestine is desolate and unlovely, and why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Just a generation before Israel was returned to the land, it was desolate. He goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter talking of the utter devastation of the land. He numbers the people that are there as well. So when you see this thing about the Palestinian people having been there, he's already documented how many were there. You'll be surprised. Read it yourself. God has spoken to us through his word. I'm going to give you one more bit of prophecy before I move on to the next point. Charlie Garrett. I fulfilled Bible prophecy. Me, this beard, these shoes, I fulfilled Bible prophecy. The son of my father, the father of my son. If you think I'm insane, listen to this. In 2003, my mom, she paid for me to go to Israel with her. Of course, she didn't send me alone. She had to go. We went there, and for the first three days that I was there, I was sick. I was miserable, and I couldn't have given a hoot about anything. But I finally started feeling better. And I think it was around the Sea of Galilee, and I'm looking at the plantations of banana trees and all of the citrus fruit and the beautiful trees that are everywhere when just two generations before there wasn't a tree, not a tree standing in the land of Israel. It's beautiful. And I said, Mom, do you remember what I said? It's like the Garden of Eden. And I came back, and I was in my store, and I was reading the book of Ezekiel, and I laughed. I called her up right away, and I told her, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying waste in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. I was so excited. I got to tell you what. God fulfilled his word in Charlie Garrett. And how could I deny what this says? What a precious word he's given us and what a sure word. And what a heritage we have that we can stand with Israel as a nation. So please remember that. We know that it's God's word. We know how it validates itself from God about God, from man about God within itself. And then it confirms itself. Predictive prophecy. 
how do we approach the Bible? This is really important. And I'm going to give you five options. And I'm not saying any of them are right. And I'm not saying that you need to approach it in this way. But I'm going to give you these five options. And I'm going to explain why. Do we approach it like a collection of books, like Edgar Allan Poe's stories? Or do we approach it like a dead body? Or maybe like a poisonous snake? Or maybe like a trip to Gettysburg? Or do we approach it like a love letter? And I'm going to tell you why I chose those. Because I have, at one time or another in my life, approached the Bible like each one of those. I used to read the full collection of Edgar Allan Poe every single year, year after year after year. Loved it. And I'd read this story and say, man, is that fun. And then obviously, you know, the morbid ones. But he has a sense of humor. He writes detective stories. And every one of them is individual. And I remember the, the feeling I'd get when I read them. Well, the first time I read the Bible, I was about 14, and I read it in ye old King James English. And it was hard reading. But I did get something out of it. Oh, this story is fun. And this one is hard to read. Leviticus. Oh, you know, I mean, you're going through the Bible and you're getting all these different things out of it. But it wasn't a unified whole to me. It was just a collection of stories. And then one day I was standing in my store, 2238 Gulfgate Drive. I had a store. And some guys came in and they wanted to talk to me about the Bible. And I said, okay, come on, we'll talk about it. I was kind of arrogant in my approach to it. And, uh, I asked him a specific question. He said, I know where that is. And he turned to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And he turned the Bible to me and I read it. And I recoiled. There's death in that book. And I'm a dead man. And I remember feeling that. If that man was Mike Tyson and I was looking the other way and he sucker punched me, it couldn't have had more of an effect on my life. I remember it like that. And I'll tell you why I was like a dead body. It's because when I was in Japan, I worked at the 475th Services Squadron. And they handle furnishings management. They handle billeting. They handle food services. But they also handle mortuary affairs. And I used to volunteer to go down there and help in the mortuary. It's very interesting. It's a little brutal. It's not like seeing a body in a casket. And people would say, Charlie, next time you have a dead body coming, can I see it? Well, Sure. We'll go down and embalm it, and you can watch. Every single person that walked into that room did exactly the same thing. There was death in that room, and they didn't want to breathe it in, and they wanted to get as far away from it as possible. And that's what the Bible did to me. I realized the death that the Bible contains for the first time in my life. And I thought, I don't know what to do about this, but I'm going to find out. And so I started reading it. And I read it, and I read it, and I read it. Ten hours a day. It was a slow season. Tour season is over. No customers. Ten hours a day. I'd read it in one week, and I'd finish it, and I'd turn back to Genesis, and I'd start again. And I did this week after week after week for over a year. I'd go home, and I'd still read it. I'd sit in church, and the pastor would be saying some boring sermon, and I'd be reading the Bible. My wife will tell you. She just thought, what is this guy thinking? I couldn't stop reading the Bible. Maybe 25, maybe 30 times that first year, I, I couldn't get enough of it. And I realized something. I approach it like a poisonous snake. Why would I do that? It's because I lived in Malaysia, and I had a garden in my, at my house. And anybody knows my house here. I love to play in the garden and cut things. Well, in Malaysia, there was a cobra in the garden. And I thought, well, I don't want to kill the poor thing. So here's what I did. Picked him up. 
And I looked at him. I picked up a spitting snake, the golden cobra. He spit right in my right eye, and he completely blinded me. Ate off the entire lens of my eye. It was like acid. It was so painful. And my children were over there looking at me like, what is dad doing? You know, my wife was freaking out. And, you know, I'm holding this thing. I couldn't even let it go because his mouth was like this. And I'm thinking, if I let him go, I can't see. And so he's going to come back and bite me. And I can't throw it because it'll land on one of the children and bite him. And I'm just, you know, I carried this thing all over the place. We went to the hospital. I wanted them to know what kind of poison it was, thinking maybe they needed to know that. They made me walk back out of the hospital and get rid of the snake. All right. But I found out from the Bible, it says this in the book of Revelation. Talk about comfort. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. All you need is the right covering. Gee whiz, pick up a spitting snake, just wear your sunglasses. Or if you go out for a walk in the woods, everybody knows I always wear my shoes. I'm going to put on shoes so they don't bite me in the heel, right? You just need the right covering, and the death is gone. You have exchanged death for life when you wear the right garments. And so after that, it became like a trip to Gettysburg. As you all know, or some of you know, I went on a trip around America here recently. I went to all the 50 states. And the GPS took me through Gettysburg. I had no idea I was going to be there. And when I arrived, I thought, I'm in Gettysburg. So I, I, I asked the boy that was with me, went with, for eight states with me. I said, Cameron, do you want to go see the memorial? He says, oh, yeah, sure. So I asked the lady, I said, where is, where is the battlefield? And she said, sir, it's everywhere. And I said, what do you mean? She said, this entire place is a battlefield. She said, this is it. And I thought, oh, okay. I said, there's no memorial. She said, oh, you just go right on down the road here. You'll get to Gettysburg, the memorial. And I thought to myself, this is going to be so cool. That's what I said. This is going to be great. I'm going to have pictures for Facebook. I'm going to have posts, and everybody's going to make comments, and I'm going to be the hero of the day. I pulled through the gate of Gettysburg, put the car into park, and broke down into tears. And I cried for 15 minutes. Battlefield over here is a giant, and as far as your eye can see, our cannons lined up in battle formation. Uncle Charlie, are you crying? No, I'm okay. And I thought about men who said goodbye to their wife. I even thought of how the last time their hands were just pulling apart from each other and they would never touch again. Mothers that were sitting at home waiting never heard the fate of their child. And children, the little hands reached up and said goodbye for the last time. And these people died for a real cause and for a real purpose. And I was overwhelmed. And as we started driving, battle formations everywhere. And on this side of the road were signs, sign after sign after sign. The 51st Sharpshooters Regiment came. 180 men, 97 dead. And the Florida Regiment of whatever, 470 men, 222 died. And all the way down the Confederate side, men died for what they believed in. 
and then you swing around and you come to the Union side. 682 men came. 316 dead. And it went on for miles and miles. And it became so sacred to me. Yeah, I'm going to get those photos. It was beautiful and it was holy and it was sacred to walk on that land. And that's what the Bible became to me after I had the right covering. Here's what it says in the book of Isaiah. In the first verse of the 66th chapter, it says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. We look around at all the beauty here, the trees, the majesty, and he calls it a footstool, something you don't even look at. And then in the second verse, God says this to us. For all these things my hand has made, and all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And so you have to ask yourself today, do you tremble when you read the word of God? Is it holy? Is it sacred? Did somebody die in the writing of this book for you? Because that's what the Bible is. Much more sacred than a trip to Gettysburg that brought me to tears. I used to read it day after day with tears streaming down my face. And sometimes I still do. Because I tremble at God's word. And he promises if you do on you, he will look. More than the entire world. More than the heavens, he will look on you. And finally, it became like a love letter to me. A precious love letter. Here is my father sending me his son and telling me about this deed in his word. And I start running to him. And of course, you know the parable. He opens his arms and he runs to me. And he'll run to you if you tremble at his word. If you're wearing the right garments of righteousness, You no longer have to approach it like a dead body. The death is gone because the death was given us at Calvary. God's word is holy, and it is a love letter to you. How do we approach God? That's my last point. We know how to approach the Bible in whatever way the Lord is speaking to us at that moment in our life. But how do we approach God? You know, it's so simple. It's so easy that Paul calls it a stumbling block. You know what a stumbling block is? You're walking down the sidewalk with your wife and your son, and one of the pieces of concrete is raised up just a little bit above the other one. And you trip, and your son laughs at you, and your wife says, are you okay? That's a stumbling block. It's just something you don't even notice. The Bible is so immense. It's so wonderful. It's so lofty. And yet, there is what's called the bottom shelf, the shelf where even a child can understand what God has done. How do we approach God? The Bible says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. He is our mediator. He is our advocate on high, the one that speaks to the infinite God, finite man. 
says right there in the Bible, there is none righteous. No, not one. Charlie Garrett has sinned. Not only have I sinned, I inherited Adam's sin, so I'm already dead according to what Jesus said. He who doesn't believe is condemned already. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Here is God, infinitely glorious. And here is man, finite and inglorious. And then Jesus Christ comes, born of the Holy Spirit, and born of a woman, of the sons of Adam. So he can put his hand on the infinitely glorious Father, and he can put his hand on the finite sons of man. And he can build that bridge back to him that nobody else can build. This is the way to God, through the mediator. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And then the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but wages are something you earn. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow. And by the end of the week, somebody is going to owe you something. They're going to have to give you a paycheck. The wages of sin is death. We have earned death. There's nothing we can do about it. It is what we have earned. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, a gift is something you can't earn. Somebody gives you something, you say, here, let me pay for that. And you pull out your wallet and they say, what are you doing? And eventually you're going to offend them. They're going to say, this was a gift. And if you try to do something to pay back God, you're offending God. He did the work in his own son. He took the penalty that you and I deserve. And he says, I offer you this. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, right? We're in our sin. We have earned it. The wages of sin is death. We have earned this condemnation, and God offers us this gift. Don't bother going to Walmart and handing out tracts. Don't go on a capital adventure and tell people about Jesus. I'm talking about getting right with God. You don't need to do any of those things. What is the stumbling block that Paul gives us? Here it comes. This is difficult. It says right here, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the stumbling block. It's so simple that we, we're out there trying to earn God's favor. Seventh-day Adventists out there spending the whole day at Saturday in church trying to earn God's favor. Jehovah's Witnesses out there trying to earn God's favor. They never have any assurance of eternal salvation because they're trying to earn something that has already been offered freely. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I would ask you today that if you have never called on the name of the Lord, that this is the day that you do it. Jesus himself said, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's a gift. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever, Linda or Tom or Mark, Mary, Denise, Alice, Susan, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is what God offers in this immense book that I've tried so incompetently to put into a 30-minute sermon for you. This is what God offers us, is Jesus Christ, his only son, to take away the sin that we have died by, to give us that eternal life. And so I'd like you to think on these things. And I'd like you to remember what was read earlier. The Bible 
contains the mind of God, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is the design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river, a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. And Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for allowing me to speak about your word. It is the greatest honor that a person can have to be able to speak the words that you have given us and to analyze them and to love them and to cherish them and to treat them as holy and sacred and perfect in all that they contain, all they proclaim, all they record. Lord God, if anybody in this room came here with a doubt, I ask that you convict their hearts and their minds and their souls and don't give them a moment of rest until they research this for themselves and come to the conclusion that you are God and that you love them enough to send your own son for them. And it's in the beautiful, the precious, and the glorious name of Jesus Christ our Lord that I make this prayer. Amen.